Hi and welcome to the 35th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month I'm talking to Maria Slavkovic, Associate Professor at University of Bergen. We talk about wondering about new language for machine intelligence, expert systems and some of the history of AI, unchecked bot networks on the internet, and how a lot of autonomous systems are embedded in the network, how technology doesn't always work for you, and we dive into Maria's specialty, collective reasoning and judgment aggregation. To find out more about the Machine Ethics Podcast, go to machine-ethics.net to see some of our past podcasts, more information, and you can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machineethics. There you'll find other content, videos, uh, reading lists and bits and bobs from the world of AI. Thank you and hope you enjoy. So hi, Maria. Hi, Ben. Hi. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, Could you introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, who you are and what you do? So my name is Maria Slavkovic and I'm an associate professor at the University of Bergen in Norway. And what I do is I, the reason why we are talking, I guess, is that I do research in artificial intelligence and specifically I'm interested in collective reasoning problems in machine ethics. Great. The first, the question I usually ask people is, um, because we have a varying degree of answers here, um, it sounds pretty basic, but uh, to you, what is AI? What is artificial intelligence? Right. So, I mean, I I come from a background that has gone from um, electrical engineering through computational logic through my PhD was in um, computational social choice. I did postdocs in verification. So a very technical background. And for me, uh, the definition of Russell and Norwich stands. So we are attempting to uh, recreate intelligent behavior in software and hardware. And to me, that's what AI is. Of course, I mean, the goal for AI for me is that we, nobody would, to make sure that nobody does a job that they wouldn't have to do particularly a domestic label, but unfortunately I don't work directly in that. Right, so that's like um, the dream for AI, basically. Yes, the dream yeah. for AI. Nobody has to clean their house unless they really, really want to or do yeah. a job they, they, they don't want to do right. and so on. But less, maybe I could do it for pleasure, so I'm, I'm doing the wash the dishes. Well, for pleasure yeah. by all means, right? Okay. You can wash the dishes, but if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. That's yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well, um, let's let's uh, get there. Um, <laughs> so that we you, you spoke briefly about this label of, um, was it uh, decision-making in machine ethics and these terms? So, that, so, I mean, I understand that today people have this attitude a lot that AI is like this gold egg and it's the mystery gold egg and we don't know what's inside, but it's like, wow, it's awesome. Uh, maybe it's going to be scary and it's going to do bad things to us. But I mean, for me, it's not like this. I don't see AI as um, some kind of a mystery technology that we don't understand or this new entity and so on. I think we don't have a proper language to talk about um, cognitive behavior in machines. So we apply to it language that we use to talk about cognitive behavior in people. And then we kind of apply additionally with that certain other expectations of people and then everything just gets confused. Mm. So when we're talking about decision-making and this is what I'm interested in. So it's, it's um, without AI, this entire field that I mentioned, which is uh, computational social choice is about understanding how information can be put together. So in the simplest sense, this is something like elections, like you have a lot of opinions and who should lead the country, what is the best decision, what is the decision you want here. And um, in machine ethics, we need to somehow be able to have some kind of a moral decision-making capacity built in Mm -hmm. uh, software or embedded software and so on. So then the question is who decides what that moral decision capacity is. I mean, who decides what's good and bad? And in order to do that, I, it's my opinion, that we have to somehow put together information. And that's why, why I kind of put those things together. Okay. If you let me unchecked, I can talk for hours. It has been known. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try, let's, let's try and unpack those things. Because I imagine um, the people listening to this might have an uh, issue with um, either not knowing some of these terms or just disagreeing with you there. So Absolutely. what kinds of um, instances do we need machine ethics or this idea that um, we give um, a program, an algorithm, some agency to make decisions? Right. So, I mean, uh, the situation has uh, 
what really fascinates me about this current narrative of AI is that AI has been with us since 1956, at least, since there has been computers, and it's just a moving uh, border as to what we call AI, what we call computer science, mm. right? And the reason why nobody really talked about um, AI and ethics up until now was the way we programmed smart machines was that we programmed them, experts programmed them, and they were supposed to be used by experts in a very controlled environment. So there are two ways to make something um, behave intelligently. One is to, to have a very, very simplified behavior in a complex environment. So you can just you know, do your thing, move forward, move backwards, and that's it. Or to simplify the environment and get complex behavior. This is what we used to do. We simplify the environment to get complex behavior. You can think mm. of automated trains, for example, right? You cannot approach the track of the train because we need that simple straight line so, so that the train can know what they're doing. So since I would say like 10 years, perhaps it has been probably more, um, we have smart systems in a complex environment that do complex things. So necessarily these systems interact with um, uh, people who are not trained to interact with these systems, right? So you don't, hmm. you cannot anticipate the behavior of the system. You don't even necessarily know that you're interacting with a machine. Like think of a chatbot or you're tweeting at a company and it's like, I don't know whether whoever replies this tweet is a person or not person anymore, right? And because of this, because you have this unchecked interaction, you need to have certain level of moral behavior programmed in. And I use behavior deliberately, not agency, because it doesn't have to be agency. And I, I know quite a lot of philosophers who are going to, vehemently, I think that's how you pronounce that, mm -hmm. yeah. argue that you cannot have an agency within the machine. And I stand at the side which says, I don't really care whether this is agency or not. What we want is behavior mm -hmm. because we want that a machine uh, does not erode the values of a society, however you define that. And it is because of this new tendency of having complex system interacting with non-professionals that we need this. So it's not about some scary domination of the world. It's just basic usability in a, in a way and caution. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the circumstance that these uh, algorithms operate, you know, and who they interact with. That's, that's right. your main thing. And I think... I mean, people think about... Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Just, uh, people think about, um, you know, whenever you say AI that interacts with people and immediately, immediately you imagine this driverless car. Uh, that runs over people on the street or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, in reality, it's also quite a lot of unembodied algorithm software that interacts with people. And those are also uh, of, of concern here. Yeah, so it kind of seems like you're spreading your net wider then um, to encompass uh, maybe lots of different ways that people interact over social media, over the internet, and how algorithms interact with real world, essentially. Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, because there are much more smarter things going on online than they are in driverless cars. Because, I mean, the number of driverless cars is small, whereas the number of algorithms that interact with people online is quite large. Yeah. Do, do you have, like, um, uh, an idea of what those, uh, like, basic things that people should be doing when they're creating these sorts of algorithms or interactions? For example, you, you um, said about chatbots and, and Twitter bots and things like that. Um, yeah. Could it not just be a simple thing that you could say, this is a bot, or I am Jeff the robot, or, you know, some sort of uh, transparency there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one thing that you can do. But then uh, the, the how transparent is transparent? Because just saying I am a, I am a chatbot um, or I'm a machine, it does not necessarily tell this person who interacts with it what its abilities are, what are the cornerstones mm. of of its abilities because uh, or how can I check for myself what this chatbot can do and then people have very different expectations from totally silly to um, I don't know some sci-fi hmm. uh, version of unrealistic version of software yeah um, and then it's also the question of first, so that is a question of understanding what this means and then the second which is different for different people right mm -hmm. different people yeah, have yeah. different expectations and background and then the second thing is okay if this is a chatbot how can i influence it because when you talk to a person then we have certain um 
we have certain uh, experiences about interacting with people and knowing mm -hmm. that, you know, you can maybe emotionally push them le left, right, or, you know, appeal to certain humanity if you need something done or to reason or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But when you interact with a machine, so how do I feedback this machine? It feels like, okay, it's like talking to a wall or something. Or, mm -hmm. but is it really the case? Yeah. Or is it uh, maybe talking to a larger system? You know, and this is just a, a tiny aspect of it, which is being right. broadcast to you. But actually, it then goes like this, and there's all this behind yeah. the scenes yeah. that are yeah. doing other things. You know, is that? Well, a... it's also a question of who I'm really talking to, right? Mm. I mean, I'm kind of typing in these messages uh, to this algorithm that does something for it, but then where does the bug stop in a way? Mm -hmm. So it could be that people are looking at this, and maybe it's people in my country or my town, and it's a really, really small town. So I don't really want the, oh, wait, it's actually my next door neighbor that freelances, at, I don't know, Amazon Turk that sees yeah. all my private conversations with the chatbot from the medical office or something. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. But it's not simple. But Yeah. I, I mean, and you alluded to like a couple of news stories that have come out recently about big companies listening in on your, right. uh, on your chats, basically on your, I think it was Microsoft or something like that. Um, and they, I can't remember if Skype, but one of their systems they were sending audio to people to listen to, to make the right. system better, you know? So, I mean, this is um, what I do uh, in research-wide is actually very, very theoretical and very mathematical. Uh, and what we are looking at is theoretical properties of interaction of information from different sources under different circumstances and so on, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the consequences of this is that um, it feeds into this big narrative of, what happens with information when it's just interacts uh and this is what our information does right now i mean mm. so well i have to say that currently none of the systems that you are none of your apps none of your browser systems in reality works for you especially if it says free then it definitely doesn't work for you so mm -hmm. uh, the assumption is always has to be that somebody is uh reading this and listening to this and there's some human processing so if you work in ai you are very very well aware of the limits of what ai does and whenever you see a system like this you know that yeah there is a person that looks at this your only hope is that this person is somewhere far away and absolutely uninterested in meddling with your affairs so basically but that's the state of the art yeah i mean ai if you look at the definitions it says about that one of these definitions says it's about building agents that behave ethically, right? Right. But we don't, in fact, build agents. We build parts of agents. And then we fill in the other parts with uh, peer people's agency. Yeah, so you maybe, you build the automated bit, the easy bit maybe, the, yeah. the bit that looks at lots well, of text. And then if it comes to a problem, then it will go and ask a human or something. Some, is that sort of system? Well, it's actually a lot more simpler than that. I mean, if you take something like, um, I'm trying to find a good analogy here, but I guess there isn't one. You just, it's like your brain is not actually one unit, but it's a bunch of people and they all do mm -hmm. different things. Yeah. And then they kind of inform each other about what they have done, but in a very, very bad way. <laughs> So, I mean, to say that the system asks a person for help, that would be already too advanced. So it's like, uh, in the best case scenario, an example would be you have an image classifier. Is it a cat? Is it a dog? Right. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. somebody, some person has already fed the training set, has classified a bunch of examples of is this a cat? Is, it, is this a dog? Um, and then you have automated classification and it has a certain... Um, percentage of uh, confidence is how sure the mm. classification is, how certain it is. Um, so that that means that we have automated the recognition of cats. So then in order to uh, make sure that you don't take the to to make sure that mistakes don't happen, whenever this certainty is below a certain threshold, you mm -hmm. program another program that says, well, it is below the threshold, do something. Yeah. And then that do something can be like, you know, try a different uh, classification algorithm or ping somebody who is on, on duty or so on. But what these people usually do is the ones that are involved in the automation is they 
they either label examples or they check whether examples have been correctly labeled or look at cases that have low accuracy uh, or confidence in that whatever handling they're doing mm -hmm. and try to learn why this has happened. So the actual yeah. intelligence actually comes in from people. Right. So um, what I find interesting here is like, um, if, if um, let's presume that our uh, listeners kind of have that in mind and, and that these systems are maybe very good at uh, kind of statistical engines for working out whether something is true or not, let's say. So is it a cat or a dog? And it gives you this percentage in confidence. And as the human programmer, we can say, um, if it's below 80%, then do something else. Um, if this is the case, um, can you use AI and these sorts of algorithms in making this the machine ethics side as well? Because you've got, if we've got this brain, which is made up of all these different parts, is our ethical part also a similar sort of situation? Uh, yes, uh, I think so. But um, there is this tweet that uh, that came uh, uh, popped up in my timeline at one point, and I really don't remember who it was from because it's a pity because it's brilliant and it says the biggest problem with machine ethics is that we don't understand human ethics. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you understand something very well, uh, and I say this always, it's like very easy to build an AI that follows the rules. So if I know what the rules are, mm -hmm. then I can build to follow the rules. The problem is, how do we build a machine that breaks the rules? Because a lot of ethical reasoning is about making exceptions in cases, right? If we had a clear cut case and say mm -hmm. in this, this condition, then that condition and that condition, never under any circumstances do this, that's a constraint, we are great with constraints. Yeah. But then there are, unless this is the case, but maybe if this other thing is the case and so on, right? So there are many schools of thought as to how do you approach to build machine ethics, ethical mm -hmm. reason. And so uh, there is there are two, I would say, kind of basic works here. One is um, a, a paper and a book by Wallach and Allen. And then they go, you can build it bottom up or top down. It yep. means basically like you can, we are still interpreting what they meant exactly. But uh, uh, it, it, the idea is that you can either have a machine that gradually learns to follow the, some, some rules and then it comes up with something. Or you can have, you can take a known ethical theory that is developed to a certain satisfactory level and then break it down into simple actions and cases which basically says if you are in a chat uh, and uh, you cannot verify who the source of this chat is do not send nude pictures or something yeah. so very very simple um, and then there are the, the in a way an orthogonal to this there is uh, the work of uh, Moore who says that well you can have ethical uh, implicit ethical agents and explicit ethical agents and one of them the implicit ones is just you program a machine to follow a bunch of rules. As long as the machine can recognize the situation it is in, it will follow these rules. And if it doesn't, then it will call somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Or stop or you yeah. know, default behavior. Yeah. Um, and the other, uh, the explicit is that then you try to implement some kind of understanding so that the machine and understanding under quotation marks, right? Mm -hmm. Machines don't understand anything. Um, you can try to enable some capacity in the machine to recognize a situation, map it to a situation that it has recognized before and apply, find out by itself which moral principles applies, what is the ethical situation here and decide what to do. So mm -hmm, the machine mm -hmm. uses its autonomy, again, whatever that means, yeah. um, to, to make a decision. So these are kind mm -hmm. of like two by two in a way yeah. approaches. And then in, in all of these cases, we are not talking about machine solving hard dilemmas that people couldn't have solved. We are more talking about what is common sense reasoning rather than some high level ethicity or so. Right. Um, those, those two examples sound very similar. The implicit, right. explicit, and the bottom up, top down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not though. There are some kind of details in them. Okay, yeah. Cool. Um, so uh, what I like about this is then it, you, you alluded to the fact that we don't have a good understanding of what um, that ethical reasoning should be um, in any particular circumstance. We could um, argue in various directions, um, given a, you know, even a very small domain, we could probably have mm. um, lots of circumstances which 
we across the world might not have a definitive answer to. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there, is there, I mean, is that the, the vanguard? Is that the, the biggest problem in this, um, in, in machine ethics today? Is, is this what we're still grappling with? Uh, so, I mean, if you take into consideration that machine ethics basically exists for 10 years, and I'm mm. being very generous here, uh, I wouldn't say there is one big problem. It's, uh, okay. it's like a lot of, we are finding out the problems. I mean, we are mapping out the field right now and finding out, okay, this is a problem. The difference, one of the differences between yeah. engineering and research is that in, in research, we're looking for problems and engineering, we're looking for solutions, right? And so in this, um, in machine ethics, we're kind of pressed to do both. And uh, we are still looking for what the problems are. So I don't think there is one solution that fits all. There is not one approach that fits all. And you, as you alluded, I mean, what is okay in one country, in one situation within one family is not okay in another country, in another household, for example, and so on. Which is brings me back to the beginning when I said uh, you have these... Um, collective reasoning and collective decision-making situations because then who decides what is right? So you have the law mm -hmm. on one hand, uh, which has aspects of morality in it, and then you have uh, the society norms and expectations and so on and values that as a society somehow we have agreed that we are upholding and then you have the personal morals. And then all of them, in some situations, it's fine to just say it is illegal to build a car that does this way and it's okay. But on, in other cases, it's like if you have something like um, uh, these uh, assisted living uh, robot, let's say, that's supposed to help you in your old age to mm -hmm. be independent in the house and then uh, it should decide this is very classic scenario in machine ethics works. Um, uh, the, the robot should decide whether you it, it reminds you to take your medicine and you keep saying, no, I don't want to do it. And then, of course, it has to re have respect for your opinions. But at one point, you have just pushed by the line. It becomes continue not taking your medicine. And then the question is, should it report to your children or whoever is your, in a way, um, uh, deputized to do medical decisions for you or to your doctor or what should it do? And then there are people who have who, who want their children to be involved and would love their children, for example, I use children here, but it could mm. be like really anyone, who want their closed ones to be uh, involved and who would prefer that they are the ones who are informed. And then there are people who would rather not, who have this other sense of pride and say, no, I would not want. In which law in which country should be employed to make this decision? Nobody should make the decision for you. It should be mm. just you as a person. To me, this is the current problem that I'm looking at. So how do we put what is ethical opinions from several people into something that can be then defined, that can be the definition of this is what we need to implement. Mm. And then we worry about how we implement it because that's not simple either. <laughs> let's, let's, let's move on to that in a second. Um, I, just, I just wanted to interrogate this a little bit further. Um, so we have this idea that uh, you want the person to be independent, right? So you want their autonomy uh, right. in, in your old age, but they might, uh, in your example, um, not be taking their medicine and that might be quite uh, detrimental to their health. Um, right. And there are instances where the robot may be can call call someone, call home right. and say there's an issue, or it might, um, you know, persist in trying to get them to to, to take their medicine, or yep. or whatever the, the the ultimate answer there is if they say no. So given that's the case, are we not just um, in a position, let's say, where this is all just basic reasoning that we all have to do? We live in this new digitized environment and we just have to get to grips with it and have a lot of people thinking um, in depth about specific uh, issues and problems and then we'll have answers. Or do you think it's a bit more fluid and, and uh, well, um, complex? It would, be, it would be basic reasoning. But mm. then the question is like, OK, fine. Mm -hmm. What is basic reasoning? And I'm asking here and it's like mm -hmm. okay you have three friends you are deciding that uh you're trying to choose which restaurant to go tonight yeah so how do you choose um this is the question for you how do you choose uh, <laughs> and i guess this comes back to your your kind of social aggregation stuff right um right but yeah so um so I, I mean it's yeah. like there is this idea that we have these systems and then the, the, some, somebody has built all these theories mm -hmm. and in in a lot of cases we have done that and we still use the you know 
less efficient ones. I'm directly talking about voting here. Mm -hmm. um, but there is no social choice theory that talks about how do you aggregate uh, moral information. I can't mm. even call them preferences because we don't right. even really know what they are, right? Yep. Because yep. there was no need to do this. I mean, why would you Why would you do that? Why would mm. somebody aggregate moral? Because this is not how we decide what moral is in our society. Yep. We have some kind of an iterative process of trial and error and whatever yep. sticks after a while becomes the moral norm of society. Mm -hmm. We don't have a voting for... Um, for for what is the moral today in our society yeah. right you don't i don't you don't you don't go and and say well i vote that you know this is bad you don't do that so the theory doesn't exist and this is yeah. what i'm looking into do you th do you it's think, like yes um, it is basic reasoning but we haven't done it do, do you think i have a hunch that actually that sounds like a an awful place to be um if if you give people um the vote on some sort of moral inclination and they vote for Brexit again. You know, they, they make maybe a choice which is not advantageous for society as a whole because they're well, thinking this... uh, individualistically, okay. then surely maybe that's not the best route forward. Right. So this is the thing. I mean, whenever I say voting, people immediately yeah. think majority. Sure. Right. Or plurality of some kind. And yeah. uh, let me just set the record straight. Mm -hmm. yeah. There are many, many clever ways in which you can vote that do not involve majority or plurality. So majority is great if you are as, uh, you are putting together preferences, like where do we go for dinner? But if you're trying to find what the best solution is, there are other ways to do it. Right. So you're trying to find the truth. There are other ways to do this. It's not, it's not necessarily majority. Okay, so you, now, yeah. that being said, so this is the, the way we use language, right? And we kind of, apply intention to things without it and i just became aware of this recently where people mm. were i was saying consensus and people were immediately like yes majority and you're right i mean it's a very mm. bad idea to use majority here because it is very personal and then just because i happen to be among a group of people who are non-vegetarian doesn't mean that i have to start eating meat all of a sudden or vice versa right and that's why i'm saying we don't we don't know we don't know how to put things together because it is not you should somehow take everybody's opinion into account, but then there still has to be something that is consistent and coherent, and it's a new territory. Super exciting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, um, so you're working on this kind of open question of... Yes. Um, so I really, yeah. really don't like majorities. I mean, for me, I have been a minority in everything all the time, and I'm just kind of personally, I'm against this majority idea. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's good, yes, but not always. And... Uh, uh, there, there are, there has to be other ways, and then it means that sometimes we do it my way, sometimes we do it your way. It's like one approach, and then you have to figure out which are these times, right, and to which extent, and mm -hmm. so on. And what are you minimizing? Are you minimizing some kind of a number, or are you minimizing some kind of? Uh, what are you optimizing against when you're making a, a, a moral decision? So this all. Uh, is, is very complicated in the sense that it involves a lot of disciplines. So it's not something that programmers can do by themselves or mm -hmm. computer scientists or AI researchers and so on. We have to be informed by philosophers and political scientists and economists who have been doing this for a very long time, social scientists as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it is exciting. to We learn more about ourselves by building machines. Yes, it resonates with me, that comment where... I think uh, um, I first heard it from Anderson and Anderson as well, but the idea that we're learning more about our uh, our ethics, basically, and our understanding yes. ourselves through having to imbue machines with some sort of decision making. I have to mention this. We have this very ridiculous situation with philosophers sometimes. Um, uh, I, we kind of go at them. <laughs> so we, uh, I've organized a couple of these events in which you put together different disciplines and we're talking about how do we build uh, ethical behavior. Yeah. And then we always we always wail in on them and say, give us a minimum theory, give us something that is like, this is the minimum set of behavior that uh, something needs in order to be called a moral agent. And uh, so then they reply to us going something like, 
tell us what you want to do and then with what you want to do with it and then we will find it out which reminds me of this discussion at like family gatherings when your aunt comes to you and says oh i want to buy a laptop Give, tell me which laptop to buy and you go mm. like well tell me what to do with it and then i will figure it out and of course she doesn't know what she's going to do with it i mean she has no idea she just wants to try and find out and you know eventually she will learn what she doesn't know what can be done with it and yeah. this is the situation that we are in right now so okay. i mean the philosophers are like give us what we give we ask them give us the minimal theory it's something to start with and they go well tell us what you want to do with it and we just really don't know okay do, <laughs> so, do, do you think it falls under that um adage of um it's like pornography i know it when i see it sort of thing um so we'll build some well, stuff and then we'll know you know <laughs> It's actually not even like that. It requires, in my opinion, I'm sure there is uh, there's some of my philosopher friends will disagree mm. on this. Uh, we require a different, a shift in paradigm of how we think about what is ethical, because a lot of a lot of uh, uh, moral philosophy deals about. I, I recently learned these are called not, uh, considered judgment. Is when somehow we have agreed that this is good mm -hmm. somehow. Okay. Like you know, killing people bad hurting people bad, sure. you know, destroying environment bad, uh, planting trees good, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and then they are dealing with uh, building moral theories, which are basically nothing but systems of reasoning of what is good and what is bad, systems of deciding what is good and what is bad, for these difficult cases. You are on a crossroad, you can kill mm -hmm. one person or you can kill five people, right? Yep. And they don't deal with this considered judgments or this easy common sense and so on. And what we actually need is a theory that does this. So we are, we have to do it together. So the common sense theory might be an expert system. Might be. I mean, don't trash expert systems. They were a good idea. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's just very expensive. I mean, I'm I, I come I come from the logic background. I did yep. mention that full disclosure, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people who in AI right now who believe that the solution is to encase the statistical methods in a logic reasoning framework. Right. And that, what does that mean for people who maybe can't visualize that? Uh, so basically, it means that you have uh, some kind of a processing of information using a statistical method. You have a bunch of, uh, let's say, cats and dogs, right? Mm -hmm, so you mm -hmm. have a classifier which tells you this is a cat, but this is the certainty that I'm with. Uh, and you build a scaffold, like a, a program around it that tries to find out um, what do these examples have in common in which your algorithm fails? And then mm -hmm. to build some kind of an if-then rule around it. So if this is the case and that is the case um, for your data set, then you need more of these types of examples to be put in. So that's just very abstract. Oh my God, I sound like category theorists with this. Very <laughs> example. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's, that's fine. What, what's wrong with uh, category theorists? <laughs> oh, no, 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 nothing. I just make, uh, it's my, 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 my kind of uh, metaphor for when you make an example to clarify something and then yes. your example is let S be, your intuitive example is let S be a set. That's yes, okay. I think I use this. Here, I went for an intuitive example and I ended up with like a system with the things and another thing. Yeah, <laughs> so. and then it's easy and it self-updates, it self right, in that, in that example. Uh, right, I mean, so, uh, of course, this is an abstract idea. So the abstract mm. idea is to use, um, use uh, rule-based systems to reason about the data set or to reason about the... Um, the label, the classification that is being produced with a particular data set mm -hmm. in order to... So the biggest problem with st uh, statistics-based systems is that when it fails, you do not know why it has failed. Right. Uh, so uh, knowing why it has failed is very informative. Yeah. And so this is some kind of intelligence and we are trying to build that in right. back with reasoning about it. Yes, and that can help us in certain, certain circumstances that we can... Um, maybe avoid cataclysmic errors because you have some sort of feedback loop there to right. say this well, is probably I mean, going to happen because of this. It set. has to be said that mm. cataclysmic errors can be avoided by understanding when you should use statistics-based method methods and when yep. you shouldn't. That's step okay. one. Right? Sure. <laughs> and once you have decided it's okay to, to use them, then mm -hmm. you can make them work a bit better. Okay. But again... I'm not saying I know how to do this. I'm just saying this is the vogue right now in AI research. Right. 
Um, so, sure, do you, did you want to talk about the, the work you're doing in the judgment aggregation a bit more? or? Um, oh, you asked me about judgment aggregation. I know. I, I was looking at your, your, your stuff. <laughs> Is and this I was like, good for your viewership? <laughs> I don't know, yeah. We'll, we'll see. Because <laughs> I, I, I was looking at um, your um, publications and I was like, oh, I kind, of, I kind of understand some of these titles. This one... I have no idea. <laughs> so um... okay, so I can tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. Remember, you asked. Um, okay, so this is this uh, more general voting theory than voting. Let's put it this way. So okay. in voting, you aggregate preferences, mm -hmm. um, and in judgment aggregation, instead of saying I like cheese better than um, cake, for yep. example, and so on instead of comparing cheese and cake, you have some kind of a question which says, is this thing true? So you have a series of questions. Is it true that uh, Brexit will happen on the 31st of October? Yes, I went there. Um, is it true that uh, this will be bad for the economy? Uh, is it true that we should avoid, uh, if this is bad for the economy, should we then try to not make it happen and so on? So you have a series of questions and the answers to these questions are usually true or false. And then uh, the, you cannot freely give answers to the questions because they're logically related to each other. Uh, so the classic, this comes from, um, this comes from uh, legal theory uh, in the 90s. They observed that um, if you have, this is called the doctrinal paradox. This is the seminal example here that kind of started the field in a way. Uh, you have a defendant and you are trying to decide whether or not they are guilty of breach of contract. And you have three judges who are supposed to decide this. This case is this def defend is the is the defendant guilty? Mm -hmm. And then the law says the defendant is guilty if and only if there was a contract and the defendant breached it. Mm -hmm. So this is a logic relation. So there was a contract. Proposition A, uh, the contract was breached, Proposition B, and then the plaintiff, the defendant is guilty, Proposition C. So uh, C, if and only if A and B are true together. Yeah. And so then each of these three judges are deciding uh, which of these questions A, B and C are true or false, but they have to be consistent. You cannot violate the law. You cannot say there was no breach of contract, but there was a contract, therefore the, the defendant is guilty because that, that is not according to the law. So individually yeah. they have to be rational. So then how do we put together the opinions of these judges so that um, you get something, a collective decision that is rational? Uh, and then it was discovered by Kornhausen and Sager, these are these uh, law scholars in the US, that um, if you vote on issue by issue, so if you first mm -hmm. decide whether there was a contract and whether there was a breach, mm -hmm. then you are going to con convict. But if you are, uh, in some cases, right, yeah. that you will convict. But if you instead only look at the de individual decisions, that you're not going to convict. And it makes a big difference. So then it was discovered that in these cases, when you have logic relations between the questions you're asking, you cannot just pull the information uh, question by question. You have to do something else. Uh, and then it was discovered that this, in fact, is a general framework for voting, because everything that is a aggregation of preference you can in fact represent as aggregation of what we call judgments mm -hmm. and this is a complex system in which you make collective decisions and this is what i have spent quite a lot of time looking at how do we make decisions in this so type of... so just to go back to that example it so what you're saying is that it's it's better to ask whether a and b are true together rather than if a is true and then also b is true is that right it's different Better depends whether oh, okay. you're the defendant or the person whose contract. Was yes, yes. So you might get um, a, 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 let's say there's a grid of yeah, yeah. true and false and then A, B and C. You might get yes. A, B, uh, different answers from the different judges. Uh, and yeah, therefore you exactly. can't make a um, definitive answer to C. But yeah. if you ask each judge to, whether A and B together are true, then they can only say they, there's less preference there, almost. There's, yeah. there's less to deal yeah. with. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it just if you search doctrinal paradox, you will find mm -hmm. infinite examples of this. Okay. But um, uh, it it's basically illustrates that certain problems are too complex to be uh, represented 
as a single question and you have to break like for example brexit maybe can mm-hmm. said. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you have to break them down in, a, in in simpler questions but then when these simple questions inform each other depend on the answers on them depend on each other so then you cannot just do pooling you cannot just do majority because what you get even though everybody is individually rational what you get is collective irrationality uh, and then in these cases like you cannot you cannot just pool you have to of something smart to do. You have to do something else. Which happens to be computationally very difficult as mm-hmm. well. But... So you might have lots of people who say, so let's say there's 100 judges and there's no definitive mm. answer to A and B from 100 judges. What do you do there? Yeah. Well, there's no majority, let's say. There's a... There is no majority, yeah. right. So, okay. I mean, uh, one approach would be to somehow look at the issue that has the most strong opinion. So let's say 99 judges say A is true. So you start with that and you mm-hmm. said, okay, A is true. Then you have 60 judges saying B is false. And you say, okay, can I add B is false to A being true? Is this consistent? Yes. So then you add B is false. And then you see the left the left around issue. What do you deduce from what you have already mm-hmm. figured out? Right. So that's yeah. one way to do to look at it. Another way is to look at this input from each individual source as a unit of information, as a um, like a piece of information as a whole and then try mm-hmm. to see what is the similarity between all possible this one and all possible um, truth values that you can give to these questions and then you average out through these similarities mm-hmm. you use what is known as Kemeny rule um, yeah there are many and then depending on how you define similarity and how you define how you put them together what your aggregation mm-hmm. function is you get a different uh, it is well-known secret in uh, voting theory that uh, the one who chooses the voting role chooses the winner of elections. Um, um, and the same rules apply here. So nice. that opens up a lot of, of questions. So, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, so can... then if to, to pull it together mm-hmm. with the moral reasoning, what I'm saying is that in moral reasoning, we have yet another problem in which you have relations between the judges that make decisions, right? between the stakeholders in this particular case. So it's yep. not just their opinions, but they somehow relate each other to each other. Um, so I am influenced by society. I influence society. The mm. law influences me. Do I influence the law and so on? And so then it's a, it's, it's, it's a different uh, theoretical problem than just trying to find out what the truth is, as is the case with this yes. uh, and when, you, and when you're talking about truth, you talk about rational, logical truth rather than some sort of Well, I'm of talking ethereal... about, yeah, well, again, uh, yeah. I'm, I apologies to the philosophers. Um, what I mean here is uh, the specific instance when uh, the truth can be known except not just now. Things that do have a truth value and like things like, so preferences, for example, they don't have a truth value. So Mm. I can say red wine is better than white wine. You can say white is better than red and we can coexist in this world and there is no inconsistency, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I say red wine is cheaper in France than white and you say white is cheaper in France than red, then one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And these are the type of instances I talk about when I say but truth. red wine is better than white wine, so there, there is a truth there, right? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, good. <laughs> um, bad white wine is better than bad red wine. Yes. Yeah. Well <laughs> Damn it. Um, you, that's the real truth, isn't it? Um, yes. So I, I fear that um, we could talk uh, all morning currently. Um, so. I was wondering, um, before I ask the, the last question, if there's something that you wanted to add, uh, which we haven't quite covered yet. Uh, well, many things, but I should not mm. go into a rant. I would like just to say that the most crucial thing in machine ethics and AI right now is the fact that we use language wrong. And there's right. a lot of confusion into what AI is, what AI can do. And in my opinion, this confusion comes from the fact that we use the language we use when we talk about people to talk about AI, we need different words here. Okay. And it's the same thing with moral reasoning and it's the same thing with moral decision-making. You say moral agency and then people immediately ima- imagine the Terminator or HAL or GLaDOS or something like yeah. this, right? Yeah. We're talking about common sense. We're talking about when you program a robot to bring you a, a cup, a clean cup, you say, robot, bring me a clean cup. That that robot is able to do so without yanking a cup from somebody's hands. 
which is what the person wouldn't do. Right, yeah? right, right. So there's a long way to go in the foundation of the common sense rules to get us to any of our more Terminator-based exactly. scenarios, which um, obviously is easier to talk about in the media and things like that, which is quite aggravating. But um, uh, do, you, do you get um, equally as upset about that sort of thing as I do when people uh, are talking about this? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, okay. uh, I have to say that I have started that the only way out of this is to just um, train yourself to understand that when people talk about AI outside of AI research, they're talking about something else. They're not mm -hmm. talking about the research. They're talking about this um, societal, psychological concept mm -hmm. rather than the research of AI. Okay. And uh, that is the only way to sanity because otherwise you just go like, no, it doesn't believe anything. It doesn't feel anything. It doesn't decide anything. It's just like, it's a program. It's an algorithm. Just stop it, stop it. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just get upset. And okay. And of course, we can we can just we can just educate people and be more uh, transparent about um, what AI is. That this is not this big mystery. And then every, every because if you think of it like a mystery, you think that you cannot it cannot be learned by common mortals or something. But yeah. it is simple in essence. It's very very simple, and anybody can learn how to do it. And what or at least anybody can learn what the basic principles behind it are. Yeah, for and sure. People should approach it that way yes um, and hopefully if you listen to this podcast you'll have some sort of understanding and if you go back to old episodes you'll have even more understanding uh, as we talk about the different aspects and and specifically in episode 18 um, we talk about um, some of the foundational stuff uh, go and go and Great. listen um, <laughs> so the last question I usually ask is are you are there things that are you're worried about within let's say AI the the technology we're talking about here or or um and also what are you excited about uh within the field of AI research right. so what I'm worried about is uh the use of uh, statistics based methods uh, there is an excitement about this and uh I'm worried that they will be used in a situation in which uh really should have a person deciding on things that impact people like for instance uh, um, whether you're going to get a loan or whether you're going to um, you know get uh, paroled or or these systems are always built such that this is just an advisor what you get as an output from the machine learning algorithm is just an advice and the person should take into consideration this advice and then do something else and then decide but what i'm worried about is that people have too much faith in machines and then they just propagate the decision that is made by the machine and the machine can be making some very very stupid errors right mm -hmm. and that has actual impact on people's lives yeah but then i talked to some some people who work in companies in norway and apparently the situation was that people are actually of, of too uncertain about using uh, machine learning even data analysis to a certain sense it's a bit tricky so mm. maybe it's better than it seems to us up there up, up in the academia where we don't see what people in companies exactly do and the second worry is that everybody focuses on drivers cars and robots because we can see them and nobody is looking at well nobody I means not true but people are not quite panicky enough about uh the fact that what is shown to you in day out on the internet is decided by uh looking at uh what I call a voodoo doll of you. So this is a datafication of your personhood that incorporates various bits of behavior that you have exhibited online. And then it's all mushed together into your category of this is the type of person you are. And then what is shown to you online or through your apps mm -hmm. is based on this voodoo doll of you that you have no control over in yeah. a way. And yeah. this worries me. I, I like autonomy and I like that I know I create the world that I see around me, not that some, some kind of a that decision of what is presented to me is based on what some algorithm thinks, what type of a person I am. And even though if I really, so Facebook currently thinks I'm an established adult, I take great offense at that. I mean, I, I want to be an unestablished adult or something <laughs> else. Imagine you want to change your life. And it's very difficult if, you know, all that you're shown is this established adult things, mm -hmm. right? So this this is the things that 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 worry me that we have to pay a bit more attention to. Yeah. What I really hope for is that there is a lot of enthusiasm 
in AI. And then there is a lot of, uh, I've heard rumors, funding for research there. And I think we can ride the coattails of this enthusiasm to actually develop really new, smarter uh, systems. I don't, we don't really know what intelligence is. We are pretty certain it's not statistics, though. And we are right about that statistics now, so we can do better. And I think that given given enough time and given enough support from society that we can actually do deliver on this. Mm. Um, if somebody in 50 years finds this and then is like, how oh, dare you, you're so stupid. I take full responsibility. <laughs> I, I have hope that that we can deliver. We can We can deliver to the promise of people not having to do tasks that they don't yeah. want to do. So this I, is what it is about. I, I think uh, people get annoyed if I hadn't, if I don't ask you this uh, follow-up question. If what, So what do you think intelligence is if it's not statistics like a lot of these algorithms we're talking about? Ooh, I think that it is in the eye of the beholder. Okay. <laughs> That's a good uh, get-out uh, answer. <laughs> yeah, I really think that it is in the eye of the beholder. I don't think mm -hmm. there is this something like an absolute intelligence. Something looks intelligence to you and for your intents and purposes of interaction behaves intelligently and that is intelligence. Right. Uh, don't ask me about consciousness. I don't know anything about that. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Um, thank you so much uh, for speaking to me and coming on the podcast. Um, if people thank would like to follow you, um, contact you, any of those sorts of things, how can they do that? Uh, well, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm very boring on Twitter uh, because I'm kind of half torn between everybody professionally sees this and I just want to rant about things. So you know, follow me at your own. Uh, I would say. Um, and then my publications are typically um, online and I do give a lot of public talks, it seems. Not on judgment aggregation, mysteriously, but on, uh, on machine um, ethics. And so these, where these talks are and when are, they're usually on my webpage. And if you just Google my name, I'm... there's another person with my name that does research in biology, not that one. The other one. <laughs> Great. So um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Maria. Um, it was a super interesting conversation. Um, it was very exciting to be able to ask some of those more specific machine ethics questions with someone who is light years ahead and is doing her own work in this area. So I really urge you to check out some of her work and find out more about what I think about our conversation on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks again and I hope you come and listen next time.